0: Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. John J. Shepard had always seen music production as a hobby, with other music industry work earning him a paycheck. But after his first EP under the name J. Shepard became a hit for Compost Records, he began to see that he'd be able to scratch out a living from house music alone. That first record, Pipes and Sneakers, came out in 2007, and in the years since, the Berliner, by way of London and Gdańsk, Poland, staked out a reputation as one of dance music's most likeable characters, whose disco rinse house sound has made him a regular face in clubs across Europe. If the early part of his production career was in large part about his affiliation with one label, then the latter half has been about moving towards self-sufficiency. The bulk of his releases now come on his own retrofit label, including a pair of albums, over the last few years. We'd heard about some interesting anecdotes that came up along the way, like a very early DJ residency in the Cayman Islands and some time spent recording the sound clips for new releases at Juno Records, and we wanted to hear them from Shepard himself. After the dust had settled on New Year's Eve celebrations in Berlin, Jordan Rothline invited him by our offices to hear how his musical life took shape.
1: You're actually the first person that we've had in yeah. to sit down for an exchange since the new year. Okay, cool. And this is a big night for anybody who's on the DJ circuit, on the live circuit. You know, did you have a good one? Uh, how was it this year?
2: Yeah, it was great. I was here actually in Berlin, which was cool. Um, I was back in, in the UK for a bit at Christmas time, seeing family and stuff. And uh, it's actually the first time I've been in Berlin and New Year's for a few years which is cool. Um, Gig-wise, I was doing uh, one at the, the Czech Embassy, like an old kind of 70s building. What were they was,
1: doing at the Czech Embassy? Uh, it was like Year's a Eve.
2: kind of off-location big party. Like the main floor was an old um, like an old cinema, I think, because it had like a sloping floor upstairs. Like Body Code was playing up there and Jerome Sydenham, and then there was uh, downstairs myself, Tiger and Woods and stuff. So that was great. I did that first, and then secondly, played at Greismuller, I think it's, I never know how to pronounce this, Grießmüller or whatever, down on the Sonnenallee. So yeah, that was great. I did from there six till nine. So yeah, two shows, but it was yeah nice to be here. And yeah, both good. Yeah, Berlin definitely has a reputation around New Year's Eve. Totally. Well, the whole thing with the fireworks and everything, it's like totally crazy. Like you would never get that in the UK. Like the authorities would throw a fit, basically (laughs) the amount of stuff that's just going crazy out there. But you survived. You're you're in one piece. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Last year was
1: a big year for you. You released your second album. Yeah. Uh, you did a fair amount of touring. You were in Brazil. You were in...
2: Australia as well. Yeah, Brazil, uh, Australia. And Indonesia. Mm-hmm.
1: Definitely like a good year to, to look back on. I, I would imagine you feel like you have a lot to celebrate.
2: Yeah, totally. No, it's been cool. It's been sort of... Um, yeah, it was a funny sort of shaped year, most of the... Big traveling got bunched together kind of in the middle. So it was a kind of bell shaped year. It started out with my normal kind of traveling inside Europe, fairly steady, like weekend traveling and stuff. And then, yeah, I did all of these big trips, not exactly back to back, but pretty close throughout the middle of the summer. So that was really, really intense. Yeah. So all around, yeah, as you said, I was in South America for a while, then through um, Bali and Australia. Yeah. After that was pretty much straight into Sonar and then a week in Croatia. So it was a long time away. And then at the end of the summer, kind of steadied back out again, which was cool because it allowed me to get back into the studio a bit more. And as you said, finish that next uh, long player project.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Because it's, it's a little surprising. You had been releasing music for years before your first album came out. And and I know I, I remembered reading that this was kind of a long in the works project. Yeah. Then you have a year where you're as you said, taking all these big trips, and you managed to pump out another album. Was was the process different? Was it easier Yeah, this time? it was a lot
2: different, definitely. I mean, this this one was... Um, I didn't actually set out to make an album this time. It was more like I was just um, producing a lot of stuff, traveling at the same time, and um, I kind of hit a certain kind of sound with these mix downs and tracks which I was doing because I was also playing them out a lot while I was traveling. Which is something that I wasn't doing a great deal before, but I was doing a lot of, you know, test plays of the things going back, like editing them and stuff. So I was slowly kind of building up this body of material and I realized actually it's been a long time since I released any like original dance floor kind of stuff. And seeing as I had all these things which kind of fit the same kind of sound design, I was like, it'd be nice to package them as like double 12-inch and, uh, yeah, just do it as a, a second album project, basically.
1: Mm-hmm. It's listed, if you look on Discogs, the record, Seeing Sound, yeah. is, is listed as being a, a double 12-inch, not an album. I yeah, mean,
2: right. Is that how how you see it? Yeah, kind of. I mean, it was more of that than like, it's not one that I would put on at home and listen to from start to finish. The first one, Home and Garden, was, which was specifically, I'd made that because I'd done mostly dance floor stuff up until then, and I really wanted to make an album of something that you would just put on, you know, at home or whatever with friends listen to. So this one was much more a case of making, like, a kind of batch of, like, highly playable dance floor tracks that was, like, yeah, in in one package, basically. The hectic schedule. Some people say
1: that this makes creativity very difficult cuz you're you're a bit exhausted all the time jet lag yeah. just the general you know the general pains of travel maybe for other people though this would be inspiring i mean how how did you find it
2: a bit of both really i guess i mean i find that um i do find it hard to get a good flow going studio wise if i'm constantly upping sticks and traveling for a weekend and then recovering on a Monday and then you get back into it on Tuesday you have a couple of good days and then you're straight away packing your bags already to go away so I find that I really I can work on little ideas during this point but when I really want to get into something and let it flow and finish properly it's got to be like take a few weeks off or a month off and then really spend every day all day at it to um, properly like absorb what you're doing so yeah, I don't think I would, um, you know, if I was on one of these touring schedules like these guys playing two or three times every single week, you know, constantly traveling, I think I would never get any production done. So <laughs> I don't know. You, obviously, playing out the tracks you've done in the clubs is very inspiring as well. And it makes you want to get back and finish them. But I find that um, to get a really good stint, it's nice to just have time when you can, you know, go to bed early, get up early, go in the studio and get it done.
1: Is it looking like in 2015, you'll have more stretches like this? Have you planned sort of more of this studio time in, into your year looking forward?
2: Well, certainly at the beginning of the year, yeah. Like most of January, I'm taking off. So I'm not really, it's generally quite a quiet time in the industry anyway. A lot of people are going on holiday and stuff for most of January. So yeah, I'm just working on stuff now. I don't really do, do any more traveling till the end of the month. So now is a good time to, to be cracking on with new stuff as well.
1: I want to talk about how you got to this point where you're a full-time working musician. You make a living making music and then going out in the world and and playing it. Um, I mean, this wasn't always the case. No, no. Um, You've had had a number of day jobs. And um, I was sort of reading up like a number of formative experiences as well. Uh, I mean, the one interesting one that stuck out to me was... You were contacted about coming to do a residency in the Cayman Islands.
2: This is yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah, that was that was pretty random. It was basically um, at the time I had my first music industry job. I was doing a, a like a junior press officer in a PR company run by a guy who's now married to my sister, basically. And uh, he had started dating her and he ran this company called Reverb. And I think he wanted to make a good impression. He knew I was into DJing. So he's like, oh, I give the little brother like a job making tea or whatever. So that was cool. That was my first sort of music industry experience job. And um, we did like a lot of cool stuff. They did the launch of Fabric and various other things. used to work with some cool labels like Roulet from France and Compost they worked with and various others. So I'd been working there for a little while. And then these guys had been at the WMC conference just ended up talking to some guy randomly in like an all-night diner, like pissed up, and he was saying, oh, yeah, I'm from Cayman Islands, I want to open this new club there. The whole culture there is very Americanized, and we want to bring in like the concept of our bar, it's all going to be European stuff. So they brought like a bar manager from Norway, or like from the Netherlands rather, there was another guy there from Norway. They already had one girl from London, and they're like, we really want a DJ from London. So these guys I was working for said, listen, okay, I think we know someone who'd be up for it. I was about 19 or 20 at this time. So um, yeah, I got an email out of the blue from this guy explaining, I was like, yeah, wow, DJ residency, amazing. Like also on the other side of the world, you know, what could be better when you're 20 years old? So I recorded a a mixtape for him and sent off in the post... And uh I didn't hear anything back for months, so I just kind of wrote it off and then he came to me out of the blue and it's like, Okay, are you ready? Can you be here in two weeks? <laughs> and so had you that. had you been DJing
1: like like a like a lot before this? I mean Yeah,
2: yeah, I had. I mean, as a hobby, bedroom DJing for a long time before that. I don't know, I got on my decks from sort of mid teens or something. And I guess my first gig in public was probably some friends of mine had started doing a drum and bass night in Camden and asked me to play there, so that would have been one or two years before, yeah, when I was sort of seventeen or something like that. Um, so I had a bit of experience, but by the time I went to to Cayman Islands, I was properly, I was much more into like house and this kind of sound. And I'd been, obviously, as I said, working this other music industry job, so I had a bit more experience and. Yeah, I mean, what did the situation in the Cayman Islands end up being like? Well, it was interesting, to say the least. I mean, basically, I got there, and it turned out that the bar, or the club, rather, hadn't actually even been built yet, because everything was, like, way behind on schedule. But what happened is that all of these Europeans, who they were supposed to have coming over to work, had started dropping out and saying, oh, I'm not going to bother. You know, it's taking ages. So um, they just brought the remainder of us over and we actually ended up building the bar ourselves. Like myself and the bar manager, like tiled the bar, did the flooring and stuff with the help of these builders. So that was quite amusing. But most of the time we were just hanging out, like just on the beach, you know, pissing around, like going to, going to the clubs and stuff. So that was cool. And then finally the venue actually opened. And the thing is that the guy who was, was responsible for bringing me over, he was really into Deep House. And that's the tape which I'd sent him. And I'm talking like, uh, like you know, old uh, maybe Glasgow Underground, like this kind of sound, uh, early 2020 vision, like Inland Nights, that kind of stuff. So he was really into this. And um, it turned out he was just one of several investors. So at the beginning, I was playing just this kind of music every night, but it quickly came, became apparent that there's nowhere <laughs> near enough people on such an island to warrant that happening. So I wound up having to do disco on Fridays, which I didn't mind because... Yeah, yeah, you not, can not, play, not bad. yeah, you can play some like big cheesy disco hits and also get away with playing, you know, the edits and like strut records, stuff like that I used to play. And then Saturday was my night. I could play whatever I wanted, the house, tech house, etc. And then Wednesdays, I had to do uh, pop night or like R&B night or whatever. So uh, that was quite interesting. But what I ended up doing was essentially just buying like a copy of whatever number it was on, like now 21 and now 22 and have one in each CD deck <laughs> and literally like next track, fade in, fade out, which probably wasn't the most professional way to do it, but no one seemed to mind. So it was cool. <laughs> the Saturday nights when you got to do your thing, what, what was the response to that? It was good. I mean, it was a, a very small like niche scene there, but there was like a collective of people who were really into it, who were really dedicated. And there was, there was two. There was our thing on Saturday and then there was another one. There was this place called the DJ's Cantina, which was on Mondays. And there was this funny guy, Canadian guy called Alex, who used to play there, who was my sort of like... He was doing the same kind of... So there was two of us playing this kind of music. And the Monday nights was a real like... Everyone who'd been working in the nightclubs and bars would all go there because Monday was their night off. And Saturday night, people would come to my thing as well who who'd, who weren't working. So, yeah, it was good, but... um I think I st- I stuck it out there. I was supposed to go originally for 6 months to start with and I ended up staying for I think 10 or 11 months. And then at that point I was just like okay enough like I really need to get back into like a big city with a, a international scene of music. Do you feel like there was something you you took out of this experience? I mean, did it did it make you a better performer, a better DJ? Well, maybe for music. It definitely changed me as a person because just like when you're very young like that, going away to somewhere which is completely alien. I mean, it was very like eye-opening experience as well. It's very, it's kind of quite corrupt there and like we found out halfway through this thing that none of us had like proper visas and there was like quite a lot of this kind of stress going on. And I just, I met so many good people, like a few of whom have remained like really good friends actually to this day, even though we live in different countries now, obviously. So in that respect, yeah, it definitely was a a good experience for someone my age. And in terms of the DJing, yeah, it was cool, but I wasn't really pushing myself that much. I pretty much, you know, I was there for a number of months and I more or less lived off the records that I'd brought (laughs) with me. There was one record store there which would have bigger US labels like uh, Subliminal. And I guess um, they would stock things like Defected as well masters at work that kind of stuff so i would i would buy some of this kind of stuff and often play the the other sides like the dub versions um so i was buying a bit of stuff but not really pushing myself and i was also not producing there at all which i really missed because i didn't bring over any computer or anything and that's something that i had been just sort of getting into before i left like a hobby level so that also contributed quite a bit to my to me wanting to to come back to london Mm how did you end up getting into production? I guess it was just kind of a natural step from DJing for me and most of my friends who'd got into electronic music all around the same kind of time. Like a few of us had got decks and started to play. And then I remember one guy, a friend of mine had got like a basic uh, sampler and an Atari and, um, one or two other little bits of kit and we used to sit around his house just um, doing stuff in in midi on cubase so it was from that and then i yeah i kind of got hooked and was getting a bit sick of like always having to go around his house to do it so i brought like a i got this emu sampler technics decks which i brought from a friend of my sister's a guy who used to have a record store in enfield in london called dance tracks he also threw into the with the decks for free, like this massive old Akai keyboard, like a sampling keyboard, which I wish I still had, because it looks amazing. <laughs> it's like this, it had two megabit of RAM or something. And it couldn't even the, put like a MP3 on this. Oh no, 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 no. It took like these enormous floppy disks as well, which were made like only for this one device. So I could I could never actually use it for what it was for, just for like a controller keyboard. And I got, he gave me a Novation base station as well. The rack version. So yeah I was just sort of fiddling around with these kind of things and yeah in in the beginning essentially just copying like other people's music I guess it's the only way to like start out really just learning the basics of like programming drum patterns and I'd played drums before when I was younger I was really into metal and rock and had been playing in various bands so I had I knew about like structure of beats and like the structure of songs and stuff so I was really at that stage just getting into like how to program MIDI and like slowly starting to learn about mixing tracks and like the sound balance and all the rest of it. Did you find you had a knack for it? Did it come easily? Reasonably easily, but it took, it was many years before I made anything that was (laughs) by any means decent. So yeah, it took me a long time, but I wasn't really at that point. I never really had this goal of like, yeah, I want to release stuff. I want to get tracks out. It was just like a bedroom hobby. I just did it like, you know, for the, for the fun at the time. So I wasn't really out like constantly seeking people's advice. Oh, how can I do that? How can I do this? I mean, there was a few of us, you know, who were sort of learning together at the same time, but um, I guess, yeah, I guess you could say I had a knack, but it was it definitely a long process to get to a point where you are actually creating something from yourself that sounds like your own rather than just, you know, trying to learn the basics of programming by recreating other people's stuff. You may have seen like making music as
1: being a hobby, but being involved in music in some way, I mean, that's been sort of a constant in your life and a constant in your professional life as well. Yeah. You you alluded to the fact that you've had a number of different jobs in, in the music industry. Um, tell me about some of that
2: experience. Yeah, well, the one I mentioned with the PR company, that was the first. I've actually only really had two, but one of them lasted a really long time. So after I finished at the PR place, I went to do the the Cayman thing. And then when I came back, um, a friend of mine called Ben Daly had been working at this store called Selector Disc, record store in Soho in London. He had kind of wanted to move jobs. And I was talking to him in the pub and he was like, oh, I've just... Uh, I've just started this new job at this amazing company. Like this guy who works for Amato Distribution contacted me and he's like, oh, if you want to leave Selectedist, select there's this new store called Juno. And like they've suddenly become our biggest customer like over the last few months. And like I've heard they're hiring lots of people. So so Ben called them up and went down and they hired him. And, uh, and I was like, right, okay, I'm going to give it a shot as well. So he gave me the guy's number. I called them up and um, yeah, basically just went in and he just asked like, few questions about what kind of music you into like what releases have you listened to can you can you start right now and that was it basically so I was at Juno Records working from 2000 I think till 2007 so yeah seven years throughout all different aspects of the business like started out just filing the records on the shelves like picking the orders packing boxes like all this kind of stuff just a few days a week and um yeah, did pretty much most of the jobs in between and ended up doing like management stuff for the main website and also for the download site as well when that was, that was set up. Am I right that
1: you were for some part of this job, like encoding the uh, samples that they have
2: up on the website? Yeah. I used to record the sound clips. That was actually one of my favorite periods of working there. I think it was really good because at that point I also had like a day job in a, in a studio in South London as well, just doing like basic stuff making tea and things like this it was these guys mutiny they had this studio that um, basement jacks used to be there as well when they were on atlantic jacks only before excel so there was this little kind of project studio i used to work there just like doing the desk sheets for them and that kind of stuff so i'd do that during the afternoons in the mornings and then yeah in the afternoon i'd go to juno and just do the sound clip recording in the evenings and that was a really um really important i think for me musically because i was listening to everything like all different genres uh you know because you couldn't at one point there was a few of us doing doing the clips and they'd kind of get batched by which distributor they'd come in from so people generally wanted to do like well our friends anyway usually wanted to do like you know the ones that come from compact or like uh, you know some of the cooler like us distributors like the house and techno and stuff and the kind of GABA sections and things people didn't really want to do. But the more you did it, the more you realized that actually you shouldn't be too snobbish about genres. Cause within every genre, there's always like interesting stuff to hear. I think it was, yeah, very good for me um, in terms of just developing my knowledge of music. Cause I was just hearing a cross section of literally everything that was being released through like, you know, dub to like acid trance, like techno drum and bass, um, you know, deep house, all kinds of stuff. So yeah, it was a, it was a good time. I mean, sometimes obviously it would get a bit much when you're doing your, you know, third or fourth box of really banging stuff, but um yeah, it was definitely a, a good and eye-opening experience to be able to just hear all these samples across all the different genres. I guess that in my mind raises like two questions kind of.
1: Were there any memorable records that you discovered during that period? something really incredible that you're not sure you would have found out about otherwise. And I guess the second question is, did you discover that you had a guilty pleasure
2: for Gapper or something? Yeah, a bit of both. I mean, the first question, yeah, I mean, too many to mention. There was just like so much stuff we used to find out like that. And, you know, we would actively, you know, be waiting to try and get the box first from the distribute our favorite one that came in because then we'd uh, you know we were in competition with each other to try and hear what would come in first so we'd you know get the first one And i remember they used to allow each staff member to have like a a certain amount of credit that you could buy records with but i think sooner or later they had to stop because the staff ended up buying so many things that sometimes didn't even make it onto the website probably shouldn't say that actually but i think they've put a stop to that now and guilty pleasures. Yeah. I mean, I like listening to the stuff, but I think a lot of the time I wouldn't really go out and, and hear it, you know, it was more just from like an interest point of view and like getting to learn about the, the sound design, if you like, of different genres and stuff. You've become known for, you know,
1: quite a sort of specific sound, you know, really deep house, I guess would be the best way to, to put it. Yeah. Well, um, it used to I'm, be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At least it used to be. I mean... I wonder if your experience, you know, hearing all of these different records, like, did that sort of harden in a way like this, this particular interest? I mean, did it steer you in that direction away? I from think so. Other yeah, things?
2: definitely. Because I also was exposed to a lot of, um, I think disco was one genre that I didn't really know that much about until I was doing this, or shall we say, new disco. And um, I started listening to a lot of the stuff from Clone Distribution, like Moxie edits and those things and the clone label itself, that would have been around, I don't know, 2005 or something, four maybe. Yeah, through that, like learning about like Lindstrom, Prince Thomas, all this kind of sound. And I think that played heavily into my Deep House sort of beginnings. And I, I think the, the sound which came out in the first releases of Compost in, say, 2007 was a combination of those. And I guess to an extent, the the kind of minimal sound that was coming from, yeah, like compact distribution, Neutron uh, labels like Karloff and stuff, uh, even like Minus to a point at those at that time. All of those those things kind of came together and, and formed that sound of my first releases. Mm-hmm.
1: You must have also been getting more serious about your own music during that period as well.
2: I was, yeah. I mean, I didn't. I was never particularly active in terms of trying to get signed or like push my music out there. And it was actually really almost an accident that I did sign my music because um, I really hadn't sent many demos, but I'd got pretty like good at it, hobby-wise. There was a guy called Adam working at Juno and he had been the one because we did, they did this 10 year anniversary series where they took um, classic tracks and had them remixed. And he was kind of the one in charge of this. And I thought, oh, you know, I'll play him some of my tracks just to see if they need like an extra, you know, like B-side remix or something. It could be a cool way to get something out. So um I gave him the tracks and um, he didn't actually say anything, but he sent he used to do buying directly from Compost for the store rather than through a, a distributor. And he had sent them to Michael Reinboth. So Michael just emailed me out of the blue and said, like, Oh, I've just been sent some of your music. Do you want to release it on the black label imprint? I was like, Well, yeah, definitely cool. But I didn't really think that much of it at the time. It was more just like, oh, nice. Yeah, I've got a few tracks. I can get them put out on a vinyl, you know, that would be good. So there was never in my mind, even at that point, even when the first record got signed, this like vision that actually maybe this would turn into what I do full time. I just assumed that, yeah, it'd be cool. I have a record out and my normal job working in the behind the scenes industry thing would continue as it was. When then did it, sort of start to look like this was actually going to be a thing? Well, I think it's just because the first record did pretty well. I mean, actually, I say the first record, I did release some stuff previously to that under the name John Julian, which is my first and middle name. Like that was more a kind of soulful US or dare I say, funky house, basically. <laughs> and that would have been around 2003 or something. And I did one track for some a, a label of the guy who worked in the store and um, one remix as well. And they weren't, I wouldn't say bad, but it wasn't wasn't particularly good. And at the time I was making the releases, which then came out, the music which then came out on Compost, I really wanted to distance myself from that, you know. So this is why I switched the name and then first record came out and, um, yeah, ended up actually just doing really well straight away out of the box. Like it had this track Pipes and Sneakers on there, which turned out to be pretty famous. And um, I remember like Joris Vaughan had put it on his RA podcast and like there was high seller on beatport and michael called me up from sonar saying oh, i've heard this track three times already at sonar so i think once that happened it was really like and then straight away they were like listen um let's make an xdp right off the bat so then i was like okay cool like maybe i should pull my socks up and actually try and start focusing on this more full time
1: was it scary in in some way thinking that this might be what you're going to end up doing. Scary from a financial standpoint, scary creatively even maybe?
2: Yeah, I guess kind of. I mean, at that point, probably not because I hadn't actually thought about leaving work until a little while after that. And I also hadn't really thought about, at this point, I was still just thinking about producing music. I wasn't really thinking. I was DJing a fair amount in London, just in bars. And my sister and I used to run a night in London as well. So um, I was DJing here and there, but I didn't really think of this as suddenly like, oh, now I'm going to start getting DJ requests, which is basically what happened. Shortly afterwards, um, people started contacting me on MySpace. Oh, do you want to come and play here and there? I was like, oh, cool. So actually like, yeah, it might be possible to leave the job. You did leave London and then you went to Berlin? Was that the next place you ended up? No, actually I lived in Poland before that because my wife or girlfriend at the time... um, We had met and been together in London, mostly, and um, she needed to go back to finish her last year at uni where she was studying in Gdansk. And I'd been over to visit once before and actually really liked it there. It's a beautiful place, like right on the beach. It's a lovely coastline there on the Baltic Sea. There's like forest around and stuff. Yeah, this was around the time, I guess, the second record on compost had come out. It was also like doing all right. And yeah, as I said, People were starting to contact me. I remember my, I think my first ever gig abroad was in Brussels and this guy CompuPhonic had hit me up on Facebook saying, oh, I love your EP. We run this night here. Do you want to come over and play? So I did that and it was great. And um, yeah, so then Marissa said to me, oh, listen, I need to go back to finish last year of studying. And at this point I was like, right, well, here's a kind of like an opportunity to actually get out of London, change of scenery, I can leave Juno, study full-time on music, don't have to worry about how much I'm earning, blah, blah, blah. So we did. We, yeah, we left, we moved I just packed up my studio gear, took it over there, set up in our little flat and pretty much just knuckled down and worked on music there. And I did a fair amount of gigging as well, even at that early stage travelling around Europe. It was kind of there was only a small airport there. And in the winters, flights would very often get cancelled because they didn't have the best technology for the weather. And if it was like snowing a lot, so I did miss a fair few gigs for those reasons. Uh, Or sometimes I managed to get there other ways by doing like enormous train journeys over like 15 hours and stuff. So yeah, that was the first move away. And we stayed there for about a year and a half, which was, it was cool. But at the end of that point, we were both really ready to move back into a, a bigger city. And then it was a case of, either back to London or, at that point, a lot of people I knew had moved over to Berlin or were in the process of moving over. A good friend of mine, Chris Glimpse, one half of Denson Pika, uh, I was over visiting him and the landlord happened to be in the over in Berlin, I mean, and the landlord happened to be visiting the apartment to fix something and just mentioned that there was an empty apartment beneath if I was interested, and I said yes, and we just signed the agreement like dead easy. It was pretty simple back then so came that was my first time in berlin came over for one year which would have been around um i guess 2008 or maybe nine and yeah it was really good we both like totally fell in love with the city met many people over here which was cool we just stayed for one year though because like partly because of her work and partly also because i'd been out of the uk at this point now for two and a half years or more and i was just like missing london so Went back to London for two years and then came back again here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So kind of been between the two a little bit. What was appealing about Berlin? I really enjoyed the internationalness of it. The internationality, if that's such a word, I don't know. (laughs) Just the fact that there was like people from everywhere living. That was something that I really enjoyed in in East London as well, in sort of Shoreditch, Brick Lane area around two thousand four, five, six 5, 6 when I was living there. Um, there was a real a big community of lots of people like all into music from all over Europe living in one place. And London kind of lost that a bit, I think, partly because it just got so expensive and just many other reasons. But Berlin seemed to have that again. And especially after, you know, we'd been living in relatively small city before that for like a year where there was not this international scene. It was really nice to come back and be again, surrounded by people from all over the place, you know, with all their different uh, ideas about whatever music and yeah. Did you find a
1: particular affinity with the music scene here as well?
2: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'd already at that point worked with a couple of labels based here, like Dirt Crew, I think I'd done one remix and one EP for and stuff. And uh, I knew a few people already living here. So it was kind of quite easy for me to find out about what was going on I remember there was one club that we used to go to called Villa just up in Friedrichshain which is now closed down I'm trying to think which other of the I mean obviously like Panorama Bar and stuff we used to go to fairly regularly can't remember actually which of the other ones we used to go to now mm-hmm.
1: and then you end up back in London but but you don't stay I mean ultimately you
2: you come back here yeah uh... we were back in London for, for a couple of years that was also really nice it was another sort of development of uh, my musical career because it's there i met first the guys from like electric mines and stuff like that so i ended up playing quite a bit with them and doing some stuff for their label that was also the time at which retrofit my label had kind of just passed the first or second release and i was really getting into building that up more it was good to go back but um at the same time i always you know knew that it would be nice to come back to berlin at some point
1: Yeah, you had developed a a really, really close relationship with Compost. I mean, that was where your first records came out. You were sort of inextricable from them. They were sort of inextricable from from you for a while. Was it hard to sort of make the decision that you were going to do your own thing entirely? I mean, most of your records since about 2012 or so have come out on your own label.
2: Yeah, that's right. I don't know. It wasn't really something that was like a massively conscious decision. I'd always wanted to run like my own label, as I think many you know, younger producers and stuff do. Um, so once it came to the time when I felt I had enough profile, I could get away with doing that. It was always something that I wanted to explore doing. Yeah, I think once that had happened, I just got really into focusing on that for a while. And then straight after that, I think I did a remix for... For glimpse and Martin Ira on buzzing fly so i ended up talking and quite a bit with ben watt as well and uh, ended up doing an ep for him straight afterwards so it wasn't really like a conscious decision that i'm gonna stop working with compost it was more something that just went on like a different path basically mm-hmm. and i did do like a another ep for them a few years after i think
1: was it nice as well to sort of have
2: kind of full creative control over what you were putting out yeah definitely I really enjoyed that and also just the control of like the aesthetic of the thing and like who else is going to be on the label and everything but in terms of my own stuff yeah it's nice to have full creative control but it's kind of a double-edged thing as well because if you do have like a good label boss who really knows their music they can very easily pick out you know faults let's say things which could be done slightly better that because sometimes you know you're so involved in a track you can't really see the wood for the trees, but when somebody else just points out something very simple that could be taken away or just put quieter in a mix or something straight away, it makes a big difference and it's also obviously when you when it's your label it's completely on your head, you don't have someone filtering out your track saying, "Oh this is not good enough, that's not good enough, this one is this should be a side, this should be b two or whatever." So it's all down on you. There's not really anywhere to hide in that respect, but it's cool. I do. I kind of like that aspect of it as well. I mean, do you find that you
1: have to have people in your life, maybe not working in the label, but
2: people who can sort of fill that, that role? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I do generally try and like, yeah, play music to various other like friends and like peers and stuff like that. Um, And play it out a lot, I guess as well. That's one of the main things just to test it. And like, you know, you usually know if you if you're reaching for something more than a few times in your set. I mean, not the same set, obviously. But I mean, mm-hmm. if you're playing out, you know, a couple of time, a couple of gigs, and you're reaching for the same track, then you usually know it's it's good to go. You know, mm-hmm. so are you mostly playing live these days when you when you play out? A bit of like I would say half and half, or probably a bit more DJ at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems to kind of go in in waves through my. Uh, the last live I did was actually in. Um, Villanova in Hamburg, like uh, Hosch's venue, which used to be Ego. And it's really good, actually. It was the first one I'd done in a little while. And um, I'd put a lot of new music into it. It was like 80% fresh or something, which is something that I really always enjoy about doing the live sets, is that it's a really good way of like the first time to like hear your new stuff. And obviously, if you break them up into parts, you can also play a bit with the arrangements and stuff and just see... You know how it's going to work. So that's always a lot of fun. But it also means that it's also a hell of a lot of work to keep a live set constantly fresh because you're always going to be producing, you know, lots of music from scratch to go into it. So it's something that I like to do. I wouldn't like to be doing it all the time because then I think I would have no time for for DJing either. So
1: looking ahead a little bit in your own productions, in your career as a DJ, as a a live performer, where do you sort of see yourself going? I mean, is is are there certain avenues that you would like to, to get into, certain places you'd like to take your music? Uh, not
2: really, actually, <laughs> to be perfectly yeah. honest. I've never really had that much of a preconceived notion of like, okay, like this is my plan. This year I want this, this year I want that. I just tend to um, just produce music and release it and um, hopefully things <laughs> go in the right direction, basically. I mean, one thing that I am quite keen on is to get back for a little while to doing a year or two of like more EP based stuff, because that's obviously how I started out. I used to be doing two or three EPs at least each year, each of them with four tracks. And I've just come back. I've just come off the back of doing two longer projects, pretty much back to back, like the Home and Garden album and Seeing Sound. So now that I've kind of done those, I'm kind of, I've just done a remix actually this week for the first time in ages because I used to do a lot of remixes and at the beginning of last year, a load of them got bunched up together due to like difficult release timings. And I was like, okay, I want to take a break. So I've just done the first remix uh, in ages, which I've really enjoyed doing. I love doing remixes. So that's cool. But I think this um, going into next year anyway, in like the shorter term vision, I want to get back to doing a few more ep based uh, releases yeah hopefully a couple this year and a couple next year
1: putting together a four track release as opposed to an eight or a nine or a ten track release like on the surface it would seem like that would be easier i, I mean is it or are you trying to create something that's sort of aesthetically complete when you're doing an ep or just put out four great
2: tracks no definitely i've always tried to make each kind of ep like well at the risk of sounding too cheesy like a little mini journey you know so i definitely always highly consider which tracks you want to put together for sure and they usually whittle down from a, a larger pool you know i would say only at the most like one quarter of stuff which i write ever sees the light of day and like some things i write and they work really well in the live set but i just never get to the point of like making them into tracks so i just leave them as parts and just keep them only for that because it's kind of nice to have stuff which is you know only for yourself in these kind of sets so i would say it's a fairly small fraction of like the overall stuff which i produce which actually sees the light of day so when you are planning eps and stuff it's um i usually have a fair amount to like bring down to choose from
1: when you're in the studio and you're working, do you know if a track is going to make it to that end stage? Do you do you just have a sense?
2: Sometimes you can tell right off the bat, yeah. And sometimes you can think you can tell and then it just totally doesn't. I find quite often a lot of the best tracks that I've done have been ones which have just come out in like one or two days. Like Pipes and Sneakers was like that. Um, Add Up, Fuzzy Border, like a few of the other like well-known ones were just ones which were... You know, just a simple idea and just wrapped up, finished within a few days, you know.